Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series, Jesus, the King Who Came to Die, a study of the Gospel of Mark. This dynamic, fast-paced book gives the story of Jesus the Messiah, God's Son, the King, who came to suffer and die to save His people. We hope this helps you understand and apply God's Word in your life today. We're going to be looking today at uh, Mark chapter 4, verses 35 to 41. And uh, if you are newer here, we're doing a series uh, that we're calling Jesus the King Who Came to Die. We're working through Mark's gospel. It's a long, long series, uh, working through the gospel of Mark. And we've just finished going over the parables and are actually kind of starting a new section today with Mark chapter 4. So I'm going to go ahead and pray for the Lord to speak to us this morning, and then uh, we will read God's Word together and dive into the text. Father, we are so grateful to know that you are the living God. Lord, you are not a philosophy, you are not an idea, you are the Holy Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit who created all things, who sustain and uphold and rule over all things. You are the one who has redeemed all things. By your Holy Spirit, you have given us the Scripture, and we ask now for your Holy Spirit to come and open the Word of God to us. Lord, we pray that you would speak and minister to us. Lord, I pray for every one of us here this morning, Lord, as we've been Uh, Reading the parables, Lord, we want to be good soil for your seed to fall into and to spring up and to bear good fruit. And so we pray, Lord, for ourselves and for our children that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear your word. We pray for your spirit, spirit of God, come and speak to us through your word, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So Mark chapter 4, verses 35 to 41, it'll be there in the booklet and of course up on the screen. And I encourage you to uh, follow along in your own Bible. I'll be bringing up some other verses this morning as well. So Mark chapter 4, 35 to 41, hear the word of the living God. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. And leaving the crowd behind, they took him along, just as he was, in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? And he got up and he rebuked the wind and said to the waves, quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. And he said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. In 1976, there was a song that came out 
And against all odds, it became very, very popular. I say it's against all odds because the song was six and a half minutes long. And it was the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Many of you may remember it. To help you, I'm going to sing the whole song right now. <laughs> now, I'm trying to keep you here, not, dri <laughs> not drive you away, so I won't give you my rendition, but I could do an excellent job of uh, the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. But if you remember it, it's a very haunting song. I remember being a young person uh, when it came out. We had lived in Chicago and been near the Great Lakes, and I just thought of Lake Michigan and the other Great Lakes as being fun places that people went down to get in the water and swim around. And in the, in the story, which was based on an actual event that had happened in the 1970s, the Edmund Fitzgerald, which was a huge ship carrying iron ore, got caught in a furious squall that had blown up all of a sudden, and the huge ship sank. In fact, it sank, I looked it up the other day, in 530 feet of water. And for the first time, I realized, like, wow, the Great Lakes are not just a place to go play in the water. They could be very dangerous. One could get caught in a storm, and it could be catastrophic. I had known that that was the case if you were in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, but I never thought about it in smaller bodies of water. But in fact, it is the case, and we see today that it's the case. The disciples who are experienced men on the water are not out in the Atlantic Ocean. They're not even out in the Mediterranean. They are on the Sea of Galilee, but the Sea of Galilee, as we're going to be hearing, was famous then and is in fact famous now for sudden squalls blowing in that can be exceedingly dangerous. And so we're going to kind of hear an ancient wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald that almost happened in Galilee. Now, in Mark's gospel, with this passage today, we're moving into an entirely new section of the gospel. In Mark chapter 4, we've had the longest passage of Jesus teaching in the entire gospel, and they were all parables. That's Mark 4, 1 to 34. Starting here in Mark chapter 4, verse 35, and this is one of the strange places when the monks broke the Bible up into chapters. I'm not sure why they didn't start a new chapter here, although it is the same day, and that may be the reason uh, that they didn't. But from Mark 4, 35, all the way through chapter 5, verse 43, we're going to have a long section, and it's going to recount several miracle stories. Mark's brought together these miracles out of the ministry of Jesus, and we're going to be talking about them. And it's an interesting dichotomy. We're doing a big turn here, because in the parables, as we've seen, the glory of Jesus is understood to be hidden. You remember he talked about he was the lamp that had come in. He was the lamp of David, the Messiah. But it seemed like he was hidden under a bushel. He was going to be revealed later, but it seemed like he was hidden. He was like that small little tiny seed that seemed so insignificant. The kingdom is going to grow, but at this time it has seemed to be small. Well, in this section where we're going to be seeing these stories, we're going to see the power of Jesus unleashed. And we're going to see his glory revealed for all to see. There's no way if you were in that boat, his power was hidden. It was very apparent. And we're going to see that throughout. But in this, there's a key question that these miracles are meant to prompt for us. And that question is given on the lips of the disciples in Mark 4.41. And the question is this, who is this? 
Okay, in this case, even the wind and the waves of band, but it's true in every one of these miracles that we're going to see. They are all meant to prompt for us, not just that the disciples originally asked them, but we're on this journey with the disciples, and Mark is wanting us to wrestle with the question, who is this? And in fact, if you notice, the disciples are terrified. We're going to see this theme recounted multiple times in the gospel, because the answer to that question can bring up fear into the hearts of human beings. It's one thing when Jesus is kind of the hidden small seed. It's another thing when it's revealed who he is, okay? And we're going to be seeing that in these stories. Now, one thing that's interesting in this first story that we're going to go over today, there's a lot of signs, and scholars believe that this directly goes back to Peter's memory. And there are several things that point this out. Mark records a lot more details in his story than is either in Matthew or Luke. Their versions of the story are much shorter. And that's because he's got extra details. And the details are these. Number one, and I've got them highlighted here. Notice he specifically tells us it was when evening came. They just, in Matthew and Luke, it's just, well, one day this happened. Peter specifically telling us the time of day, it was evening. Number two, Peter tells us Jesus was already in the boat. In Matthew and Luke, it just almost appears like he just, one day they get into a boat and go, but he's already in the boat teaching. Number three, Peter tells us there were even other boats with them initially. They were not the only boat that was there when they set out. Number four, the other ones just say Jesus was asleep. Peter specifically tells us Jesus was in the stern of the boat and he was sleeping on a cushion. He gives us that, that little extra detail. And then finally, and I'm going to come back to this, Matthew and Luke are nice to the disciples in the way they respond to Jesus. Peter's very blunt about how they responded to Jesus. It's very clear. He's, Matthew and Luke give kind of the gist of what's going on. Peter gives what's probably the exact words of their terror as they are crying out to Jesus. And so for all of these reasons, it appears what we have here in Mark is almost Mark sitting down writing and Peter, an old man, is remembering. And what we want to do is kind of feel the sea spray hit our face with Peter because Peter is remembering very, very vividly what led him to say, who is this? The wind and the waves obey him. Who is he? So let's dive in and look at what's going on. Now, Jesus and the disciples are going to be crossing the Sea of Galilee. And it begins by just being an evening or nighttime trip across the lake. We, we read that evening came and he says to the disciples, let's go over to the other side. So Jesus is the one who's saying, we need to go ahead and do this. We're going to go to the other side. And it's the end of a day of teaching in parables. Jesus has been teaching in these parables and now he's just saying, instead of going back into town, let's go across to the other side. And interestingly, in Mark's gospel, we learn that he was already in the boat. If you remember back at the beginning of Mark chapter 4, we had been told that the crowd was so large in verse 1 that Jesus had to get into the boat to actually teach. I showed a picture of what they're pretty sure is the cove where Jesus was doing these teaching of parables near Capernaum. 
and you know that you can seat like 15 or 20,000 people and I told you that you know there are actually recordings that have been done in a modern day where I could speak in a normal voice and you can hear way way away because it's a very natural amphitheater and so Jesus is already in the boat and then notice in verse 36 that's where Peter kind of reminisces and says we took him just as he was in the boat he was already there, and so he said, instead of going ashore as the crowd's dispersing, we're just going to go across the lake. And they're probably doing this to go preach in a new area. There's an area with a, a decent number of Gentiles, and they're going to be launching out to reach out to this new area. But on the way, a furious squall comes in and hits the boat. And notice in verse 37, it says, a furious squall came up. And the Sea of Galilee is prone to these things. Modern fishermen, uh, in Arabic, they have a term there called the shark, that these furious storms come in all of a sudden out of nowhere. And this is because the Sea of Galilee is like the bottom of a basin, and it is surrounded by tall mountains. In fact, the tallest mountain in all of Israel is Mount Hermon, is on the edge of the Sea of Galilee. And what that means is, what temperature is the air up on top of the mountains? It's cold. And then it blows down into this valley where it's very warm. And when warm air and cold air hit one another, it can turn violent and it can turn violent quick. And this happens regularly in the Sea of Galilee. And in fact, they're very typical in the afternoon, which is why usually you wait to the evening that's when they would actually go out and they would fish. We see a couple times that the disciples are out fishing all night. That's because they would leave in the evening, go out and fish overnight because it was more dangerous in the afternoon. So you're heading out in this large body of water, which is known for sudden squalls that blow in, usually in the afternoon, but they can come at any time. And you're in a rather small boat. Now I'm going to put up, I just discovered this, I didn't even realize that this had happened. In 1986, this is the crazy stuff that they still find, there was a drought and they uncovered this boat and what had been underwater. And this boat is from right by where they were probably going out to sea. The boat, just so you have an idea, is 26 and a half feet long seven and a half feet wide and four and a half feet high. And they believe that this is exactly the kind of boat that Jesus is in. And they believe that for two reasons. Number one, less than a mile from where they found this boat, they have a mosaic that goes back to the first century that is a picture of a boat with people in it, and it looks exactly like what this boat looked like. And number two, they did carbon-14 dating, and it dates back to the period that we're talking about, the first century. So, obviously, this is just what remains of the boat, but you can picture this. And the big important thing, and the reason I throw that up is, when a huge storm hits, who wants to be in that little boat? Okay? It can hold about 15 people, so it's about Jesus and his disciples. You can see towards the back, that's probably where Jesus is at. This is not a very big boat for that kind of storm. And notice again in the text that we're told that uh, the, the waves are breaking over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. It's taking on water. They're in trouble. Now what's going to happen? Now what's interesting is there's two very different reactions. 
Now remember, we have a carpenter who preaches for a living, and we have a bunch of experienced seamen. One of them's going to be okay, and the other one's going to be crying out like little children. Now, if we asked which would be which, we would think the carpenter would be freaking out, and the fisherman would be like, we've been through this before. But in fact, what we find out is it's the exact opposite. Because suddenly in verse 38, we're told, Jesus is in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. Now, this is pretty interesting because this is actually, I didn't realize this until studying this week either. This is the only time in the four Gospels where we're specifically told Jesus was sleeping. We see sometimes where he arose i.e. after sleeping. But this is the only time we're specifically told that Jesus is sleeping. So it's pretty interesting that of all the times it could have been brought up, it's really important in the story here. There's this storm going on. The boat is rocking. Water is coming in. And Jesus is taking a nap in the back. Now, he's probably tired. He's been preaching. But there's a lot more that's happening. And I want us to remember in the parables, okay, we've just had the parables, and remember at the end of the parables, we saw the parables of the seed, and you remember there's the one of the farmer, and he goes out and he sows, and what does the farmer do? He so trusts God, he doesn't understand how crops grow, but he sleeps night and day because he knows that God's going to produce a crop. So now Jesus, in the very next story, is in a storm, and what's he doing? He's sleeping. And he's sleeping, as we're going to see going through this, because he understands that God is in control, that the Father is watching over things, and the Father is going to accomplish his purposes. See, Jesus knows who he is and his appointed end. Jesus is going to die on a cross, not in a squall on the Sea of Galilee. And he's aware of that. So, is there any reason to worry in this squall? There's not. He knows what his end is. He will not die in a random way. He is going to die to bear the sins of the world. And he's already been dropping some hints about that. They're going to start getting to be even more and more clear as we move through the gospel. But what he's doing here is he's sleeping because he trusts the sovereign Father. This is a picture of Psalm 4.8. In Psalm 4 we read, I will lie down and sleep in peace, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. And this is not just random. The early part of the book of Psalms is almost all laments because the psalmist is experiencing trouble and difficulty. So this statement is made not when everything is wonderful, but even when things are difficult. I'm able to lie down, I'm able to sleep, because I know, Lord, that you are watching over me. And that's exactly what's happening here. you, you got to hear Peter is reminiscing and saying, all of this is going on, but Jesus knew who he was. We're asking, who is this? He knew who he was, so he can sleep in the storm. Meanwhile... The seasoned seamen are in a full panic, okay? Now, we need to understand, it's because, notice it tells them, you know, the disciples, they're watching what's going on. They are experienced. This isn't a bunch of inexperienced people. I can remember the plebe summer, the first time I was out on Chesapeake Bay and a squall blew in and we were out uh, on sailboats 
and they started sending word in, and we were trying to get in, and then we were watching the thing come in, and I was a landlubber, <laughs> and I was like, this is not looking too good here, guys. I'm wondering, are we all going to be you know, diving into the water and uh, trying to make our way over, okay? These guys are not that. They are experienced. They know what they're doing, and you know what they know? We're in trouble. This is not good. Big storm, little boat, we're getting swamped. This could end with the boat going under, and like the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, we're a long way from land. We are probably not going to make it. So they are in an utter panic, but notice what they do. They wake Jesus. Now that shows some level of faith. They understand enough about him that they think maybe this guy can help. See, if I were asleep in the stern, and we had some of you who are sailors, you probably would not wake me up because I would not be much help, okay? But they've got some inkling, maybe Jesus can do something. So they're going to wake him up. However, this is where Peter's direct reminiscences come up, and they're very strong. Matthew and Luke give the gist, but they're, they're nice to the disciples. So in, in Matthew, for example, the words are, save us, Lord, we're perishing. Okay? Reasonable. But notice the words here in Mark. Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Which is, save us, Lord, if we're perishing, but it's a little bit more. Can you hear the accusation and what they're saying? Remember, Jesus you're the one told us to come here. You're the one told us to go across the lake. Now you are back there sleeping. And Lord, if you cared, you would not have let us get into this mess. Lord, we are in grave danger and you are asleep. See, they're not seeing his sleep as a sign of his trust in God but a lack of concern for them and their faith. Now, I've never accused God of anything like this, but I've read in books that there are other Christians. Can Put yourself there with them in the boat. Have we ever been in the place where we trust Jesus, maybe enough to wake him, but not enough to not accuse him? You see, that's exactly what's going on here. Lord, if you really cared, I wouldn't be in this spot right now. That's what they're telling him. Now, what's interesting is there's a bit of irony here because Jesus and the disciples are not going down on a boat at this point in time because his appointed time is later. But help me out, do you remember the night that he's being betrayed, he is in real danger. And he asks these very disciples, what did he ask them to do? Stay up and pray. And, and what were they doing? Mm. Pretty interesting. They're quick to accuse him of sleeping when it's not really danger for them because it's not the appointed time. But when there is real danger, they're off sleeping. There might be a lesson for us as disciples in the midst of that. Now, 
This is interesting because they've, they've awakened Jesus, and as we're reading through the Gospels, you know, let's, let's set ourselves back that we don't know the full story. One might wonder, what is a carpenter-turned-preacher going to do? Again, if you woke me, I would use my words, and they would probably be things like, this was a bad idea. Why are we out here on the water right now? What were you guys thinking and doing this? I th- you're good fishermen. You were supposed to tell me this was a bad idea, which would be of no help at all. What is Jesus going to do? Well, shockingly, what he actually does is he proves that he's the Lord over the storm. We read in verse 39, Jesus gets up and he rebukes the wind and he speaks to the waves and says, quiet, be still. Now, let that, you know, we know the story, so we can, that's kind of a weird thing to do. He's talking to a storm, right? Do, do any of us typically do that? But that's what Jesus is doing here. And I want you to see it's not just that he's talking to the storm. It's the specific words that he uses. Notice we're told he rebukes the wind. And then he tells the waves to uh, be still. You know what's interesting? We've seen these two words before. And both of them only a couple times. The very first time we see them is the first time that Jesus rebukes a demon. And you remember when he rebukes the demons, what do they always want to do? Say who he is, and he commands them to be silent. So I've highlighted here, I'm using the English Standard Version here because it translated the words a little more consistently and easily to see than the NIV. But notice, the rebuked and rebuked is the exact same word in Greek, epitomao. Uh, It's not used all that many times in in the gospel, and it's mainly on the lips of Jesus. It is used to speak to demons. Secondly, notice he tells them to be still. In, uh, in Mark 125, it was be silent because the, the demon was actually talking. And so the two previous times he's used the word rebuked in the gospel to this point, it's only the third time, it was to a demon. And the word silent, be silent, only occurs two times in Mark. Mark 125, when he tells the demon to be silent, and here when he tells the waves to be still. So these are the same words Jesus has used to confront satanic powers and agents. Now, it's possible that this could have been a satanically inspired storm. In other words, Satan is whipping up a storm around Jesus. Or it's possible it's a manifestation in the Old Testament. The waters are oftentimes known as chaos because they're a place of danger. Or it's possible It's just a terrible storm that has fallen on the Sea of Galilee because they do this regularly. You can decide which way you want to look at it and and determine what it is. But it is interesting that Jesus uses the exact same words that he's used on previous occasions with demonic powers. But in either event, Jesus conquers the storm and he does it not with some kind of magic incantation, He just simply speaks a powerful word over the storm. And what we need to grasp out of this is the Old Testament over and over and over tells us that there is a divine Lord over the storm. And who is the one that is Lord over the storm? Yahweh, God is Lord over the storm. And here it is Jesus. So in Psalm 89, verse 9, 
the psalmist writes this, speaking of Yahweh, you rule over the surging seas. When its waves mount up, you still them. Can you imagine what Peter and the guys thought the next time they read that verse? And then there's Psalm 107. This is going to be a little harder to read. I'm sorry the text is small, but we can only, you know, to get it to fit on a screen. I want you to hear this. Psalm 107 is a psalm that they think was actually used at the temple. It gives a whole bunch of times and ways people get in trouble. One of them, you're wandering in a desert waste and there's no water and you think you're going to die, but the Lord delivers you. And so when you go to the temple, you're offering him a sacrifice of thanks for his deliverance. But another place of grave danger is the, uh, is the water, the sea. So notice we read in uh, starting at verse 23 of Psalm 107, others went out to the sea in ships. They were merchants on the mighty waters. They saw the works of the Lord, his wonderful deeds in the deep. For he spoke and stirred up a tempest that lifted high the waves. They mounted up to the heavens and went down to the depths. In their uh, peril, their courage melted away. So picture you're this ship that is going up and down and up and down. And these experienced seamen are in peril and they have no courage. And then we're told, they reeled and staggered like drunken men. They were at their wit's end. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. They were glad when it grew calm, and he guided them to their desired haven. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for men. Let them exalt him in the assembly of the people and praise him in the council of elders. Can you hear how Mark's got these words ringing in his ear as he's writing this story down? Because these experienced sailors are there, the mighty storm goes up, they realize they are in great trouble, and who do they cry out to? The Lord. But who is it that the disciples cry out to? Jesus. And when these sailors in the Old Testament in their grave danger cry out to the Lord, what does he do to the storm? He stills it so it becomes like a whisper. What does Jesus stand up and do? He stills it to a whisper, and then he guides them into their haven, and then notice the response at the end of the psalm. When the Lord has delivered you like this, what are you supposed to do? Give him worship, right? Cry out to him in worship. Mark 4 leads like Psalm 107 being reenacted. Except for what we're seeing here, and this is why the disciples' question is going to come up, is in the Old Testament it is Yahweh. Now we are seeing that Yahweh has taken flesh. This man asleep on the cushion in the back of the boat is able to do what only Yahweh, the God of Israel, is able to do. This is why their question is going to get prompted. And, and let me point out, I'm not going to turn there. Another place you can look, and it's pretty interesting, is in the book of Jonah. You remember there's another similar thing. But there's a lot of contrast here because it's pointing out that Jesus is actually greater than Jonah. But the same thing uh, happens in the book of Jonah as happens here. And those sailors, if you remember, when the, still is, the storm is stilled, we are told they Fear to great fear. I'm going to come back to that in just a moment. They were terrified and they worshiped 
the Lord. Their terror was not the storm any longer, it was the Lord. So you can see these parallels in the Old Testament, but here it is Jesus who is doing this. Now what's interesting is we get two penetrating questions now. The first one comes from Jesus, and it's this, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Now what's interesting is, of course, you remember in the parables, Jesus is speaking in parables and the crowds are not getting it, but when he's alone with the disciples, he's explaining everything and he's saying, look, they're on the outside. They don't get the secrets to the kingdom. You're getting the secrets to the kingdom. And when we human beings are told something like this, what's the great danger for us? Pride. Ah, I'm one of the ones that Jesus is sharing the secrets with. And now the storm comes and I don't have as much faith as I thought I had. Okay, there, there's a bit of humbling that is going on here. Jesus says, why are you afraid? Don't you have faith? How can you be afraid? I'm five feet away. I'm in the stern of the boat. I am right here with you. And when he's asking the question, do you still have no faith? It's not just faith in general. It's faith specifically in me. Do you not understand who I am? You've been watching me teach. You've been watching me explain the kingdom. You've been watching me heal lepers. You've been watching me drive demons out of people. You've seen me do miracle after miracle. You still don't get it? And what's the answer? No, they, they really don't. <laughs> We're going to keep seeing this in the gospel. They are struggling. And so he's saying, are you still lacking faith and understanding? To which the disciples turn around and then they ask a penetrating question. And we're told, interestingly, see the word fear was not actually used in the storm. That's what was happening. They were afraid in the storm. But the word fear has been reserved till here. And the NIV translates that they were terrified. Now what's interesting here, without getting real technical, in Hebrew the way you would say they are terrified is you would say they feared a great fear. That's not how you would do it in Greek, except for here, that's exactly how it's put. They feared a great fear, which is another reason Peter's probably just letting the story bubble out in Aramaic or Hebrew, uh, his heart language, and it's coming out, and Mark's translating and doing it pretty literally. And what's interesting is that's the exact statement regarding the sailors in the book of Jonah. When, and again, it's not the storm, it's the stilling of the storm. The terror, the fearing of a great fear is suddenly we've come into pre the presence of the mighty God. We thought the storm was big. <laughs> he just had to speak one word and the whole storm was gone. Who is this? And so their, their terror and their fear has turned from a fear of the storm to a fear of the Lord. But what they're wrestling with is they have a category for the fear of the Lord they've heard about in synagogue, but now they're like, but, but this was the guy in the back of the boat. How, how do we work through this? What does this mean for us? And so they ask this question, who is this? See, the disciples have had some understanding of Jesus. They've been given some insight in the kingdom, but they're realizing there is a lot they still don't understand. 
Because whatever they thought Jesus was going to do when they woke him, it was not that. They were not prepared for him to stand up and rebuke a storm, tell the waves to stop, and to have it just drop off to nothing. That was not what they were expecting. Now, we're going to go to applying the word, and there's a, I wrestled a lot because there's multiple places we could turn this week, but I want us to think through one question. And that is, is there any area where I'm responding in fear? Where I'm still in the fear of the storm, not the fear of the Lord, because those two are juxtaposed. If I'm really fearing the Lord, my fear of the storm drops away. When I'm fearing the storm, my fear of the Lord is dropping away. Now see, the disciples responded to this storm with great fear, and I want to be clear, it was not an irrational fear. This was a reasonable fear. We have a, we have a statement in my family, my wife's about to react. Th- through our marriage, one of us has tended to do things that makes the other one say, Are, have you lost your mind? Somebody said there's a bear in the woods and you're running into the woods. I keep telling Linda not to do that and she keeps doing it anyway. No. We, we've had arguments through our marriage because I'm like, well, of course I'm running in the woods. There's a bear in the woods. I want to see the bear. How can I see it from out here? So, yes. <laughs> so, so I've come up with this phrase that's very helpful. Honey, we assess risk differently. It's a very helpful phrase, guys. Give it a shot. See if it works for you. We assess risk differently. And that's me saying, I understand you're a little bit nervous, but I don't think this is that bad a situation. There is nobody who would have been in that boat and would have assessed risk differently. We would have all said, we're about to drown and die. Okay? This is not an irrational fear that they've got. That's not the problem. But the interesting thing is Jesus still rebuked them. He still rebuked them because their fear of the storm was greater than their fear of the Lord. That's really what's going on here. And this is a challenge. And friends, let's be honest. I joked, you know, I've read about this in books. How many of us have been in that exact spot? I mean, I feel like I'm understanding. I feel like I see the Lord. I feel like I'm walking in the fear of the Lord. And then suddenly... My boat's getting swamped. And Lord, are you asleep? Right? I was just reading, you know, I'm reading through the Old Testament right now. You remember Elijah? One of the most amazing stories in the Old Testament. 450 prophets of Baal. You all cry out to your God. You know, hey, perhaps your God is sitting on the toilet in there. Maybe he's gone to sleep. You know, your God's not answering you in fire. And then Elijah, he's got so much faith. Hey, I'm going to see if God's going to answer, but you keep pouring water over the whole sacrifice. I am stacking the deck for Baal because I am full of faith in God. The fire comes down. It consumes it. He wins this great victory, and then Jezebel says, I'm going to come get you. And what does Elijah do? He runs off like a scared little puppy. And I would make fun of him, except I've been there. Right? Haven't we done that? See, that's exactly what happens. And so as we go through this story and we're looking at it, we need to realize that because, see, here's the grave danger. In that moment, 
My honest heart reaction, I may have enough theology that I know to not say the word, but the Lord says, but see, I know it's in his heart. He thinks I'm not aware. He thinks I'm asleep at the switch. He thinks somehow this is outside my notice or control. That's exactly what we run into. I, I, I can be so like the disciples in that exact place. And so let's ask ourselves, I'm going to uh, you know, run through just a few different places that it might be, but I'm going to ask, is there any area in my life like that right now? It might be, for example, physical health, that I'm facing something physically, and I feel like God is not watching. He has abandoned me. Maybe this is beyond him. Is it sometimes issues at work that I'm, I'm going through something? I mean, I've had that in the past, right? You know, I've got this boss I'm dealing with or this thing going on here, and Lord, I am not sure you're really paying attention. Maybe it's something financial. I know you can multiply the loaves and the fishes, but I got a bill, and I'm not sure you're going to meet me in the midst of this. Maybe it's a relationship where I am really, really, somebody I care or love, they've, they've gone off and they're in some kind of sin, there's something going on, or I, something that relationally is causing fear for me. And again, I feel like, Lord, I'm needing you, and I'm looking back, and I think you're asleep on the cushion back here. Maybe it's my reputation. I feel like everything is coming apart on me. Okay? Now, again, I want to remind us, we can all have this. There's, th th this is not something that I'm telling you, you know, I've heard about this. I have been through it. I can remember a few years ago we were going to some friend's house, and Linda just asked me, I, I was going through a, a tough period of time just in my own soul, and she said, you know, you seem like you're being really quiet, and I kind of started tearing up, and I said, it's because quite honestly, I don't think I'm a very good pastor. I feel like I'm failing at what I'm doing, and she started telling me things, and I'm, I'm like, y'all don't understand. I wake up and I look in the mirror and this is what's going on in my soul. This is where I'm at. I honestly feel like I'm in a boat and I have sailed off and I don't know why God is not with me. Okay? Now, we've been there. And the crazy thing, of course, is other people can look around and say, what are you talking about? He's right there with you. But we all together and understand what I'm saying. It's easy for me to have faith when it's your storm right? And be particularly helpful. I'll write you a poem about it, about how great God's going to be, right? But when I'm in the midst of it, it becomes easier to accuse God than rather to trust in Him. And notice Jesus identifies it as a lack of faith. And so as you think through those areas, see what happens for you and me is fear arises when our problems are big and God is small. When the storm looks huge and God seems small and perhaps asleep, 
That's when fear rises up. So I asked this morning, where's the Spirit calling me to confess my fears? For each of us, it's going to be something different. Where is He speaking to you right now? Because this isn't just some story out of a couple thousand years ago. Where is the Lord speaking to you? In the early church, uh, actually, this story became the picture of the church. The church was the ship tossed in the sea of persecution, and they were struggling. And it was hard to trust God's wisdom and providence when you just lost church members last week because they were put to death. Okay? The Spirit wants us to recognize God is still sovereign. He is still in control. He is watching over. So where is he calling me to confess my fear? And where is he calling me to grow in my faith? Because see, actually, the safest place in the world for those disciples was right there in that boat. Because nothing was happening in that boat because Jesus is in the boat. There is no place safer for you or I to be than right where God is calling us to be. But it is easy to not hear that in the midst of the storm. So where's the Spirit calling me to confess my fear and where's He calling me to grow in my faith? Now what we're going to do is we're going to come to the Lord's table, which is a great place to be reminded of God's faithfulness, His presence with us. And I want to remind us, as I spoke uh, you know, in one of the recent after hours, Again, we believe that this is a sacrament. And what I mean by that is this isn't just a nice little ceremony. The Holy Spirit is here to meet you and me. It's one thing to have some dude say something on the stage. It's another thing to have the Holy Spirit work it into my soul. The Lord is here to meet us to work it into our soul. Now what we're going to do this morning, and I, I remind you, that if you did not grab a packet there in the back, but number two, you don't have to be a member of our congregation to participate with us this morning. You do have to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And what that means is, you know, we sang in the song earlier, Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me. You know, we sing in there, not the labor of my hands could meet thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? Okay, none of that will avail before God. We are here because Jesus Christ has sacrificed himself for us. As Greg said when he was reading that psalm, I can't stand up and say, oh Lord, my hands are clean. No, they're not. But Jesus is. If you believe that, if you believe the gospel, that you have no hope of salvation apart from him, we encourage and invite you to come to the table. What we're going to do is we're going to read Romans 8 together. So if you can stand with me, we're going to read at the end of Romans 8. This is Romans 8, 31 to 39. I'll read the parts that say leader, and then y'all respond with the parts that are the congregation. And hear the gospel. And hear how it's related. God wants to encourage you. Whatever your storm is, the greatest storm you have ever faced is your sin. Okay? And Christ has delivered you. So let's hear the word of God together. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. 
Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God, and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. And now all together. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. If you believe those words, then you are invited to this table to receive from our God. For what I received from the Lord, I pass on to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. When he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he Brothers and sisters, go ahead and prepare to take the bread. And again, I'm going to give us just a brief moment to let the Holy Spirit bring anything before you where you're just struggling to trust the Lord. Let the Spirit minister to you that if God is for us, who can be against us? Father, as we hold this bread, the body of our Lord, torn for us. We confess that you truly are for us. For you did not spare your own son, but you freely gave him up for us. What love, what mercy, what grace. Because of this, we know that we can trust you in all things. For we are ever under your loving care. Brothers and sisters, take and eat. Lord, when we sin, Satan, the world, and our consciences charge us. 
And we humbly confess that their charges are true, for we have fallen short of your glory. But sinful though we are, we are not condemned, for the blood of Jesus has cleansed us from all sin. And even right now at this moment, our Lord Jesus is at your right hand, ever making intercession for us. And so, Lord, we give you thanks for his priestly work, and we rejoice that your love and your care has come to us once and for all through him. Brothers and sisters, take and drink. And let's stand together and conclude with prayer, and then I will speak a word of blessing and benediction over us. Join with me as we're crying out for God to work in us. Our gracious God, we know that you sovereignly rule all things and that you care for us. Yet in our times of trial and testing, when the wind and the waves of affliction threaten to overwhelm us, Lord, we sometimes feel as though you're asleep. And in our fear, we can feel forsaken by you. But today, Lord, in your word, you have reminded us that we need never fear. For you rule over all things. With one word, you can change everything. Lord, because you are ever watchful, let us sleep in peace. Because you are all-powerful, Lord, let us go forth and live in bold faith. Because you are fully good, Lord, let us go forth living in hope, knowing that we are safe and secure even through death itself. Because, Lord, you are going to keep us until the day of the resurrection. By your Spirit, Lord, we ask that you would root this knowledge and faith deep in our hearts so that we might go forth and not live in fear this week, but rather in bold faith. Lord, we ask that you would do this in the mighty name of Jesus, the Lord over the storm. And God's people say, Amen. Now receive a word of blessing from the prophet Isaiah. But now, this is what the Lord says to you. He who created you, O Jacob, he who has formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name, and you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Brothers and sisters, all those things are yours in Christ. You are blessed. Go forth boldly and be a blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.